Uh, welcome. My name is uh, Jason Fiedler. I am super glad that you're here because the amount of choices you had in this session, not to mention your brains are probably as full as mine from art sec session just a bit ago. And so I just thought we would just take the whole of our time and just narrate what art just gave us. How's that? So, all right, just kidding, just kidding. So here's, I'm going to say just right from go, um, it, that uh, there's a couple givens I need to throw out. Actually, this I was invited to put together this talk uh, and gave it as the closing plenary at CMI this year. And so there were four sessions of Dick Kai's talking about the imagination and about the redemptive imagination and about heroes and about, and so really I got up and I said what Dick said. All right, let's get going. And so there's a couple things that he said that I want to kind of start with as givens, okay? And one of them is this, that I don't know where you're at as far as it goes imagination. We're going to take a look at what our culture thinks of maybe as imagination or as imaginary. Um, and so, but if you, if you were to do a word search on imagination in scripture, you're actually going to see that, and maybe you've done this, but if you get out your concordance, the Bible doesn't speak highly of the imagination, believe it or not. It's mostly warnings of the imagination, and there's, which could go either way, but the thing that, that is important maybe in, in, in that is that any good gift that is given to us from, from our Father especially the better the gift, the more it can be misused or beaten or fallen. And so we see that in love, and it's not truly love if there isn't the potential for non-love, right? And so the same is true uh, in terms of the imagination. And so if you go to the Bible, not that we're not supposed to go to Scripture, we are, absolutely, but the warnings in Scripture, as far as it goes for imagination, are those who are uh, perverse or who are um, following after their own imagination. The prophet Isaiah says in Psalms, it warns about kind of um, just, well, it, there's some warnings. And, and Mason has some things to say about that. We're going to take a look at it. So, okay, that's my, I think that's uh, about, and then um, we'll get into just the role of a redeemed imagination. And so in any part of us that's affected by sin, uh, there's the potential for amazing, but also the necessity of redemption in that. And so that is also true for our imagination. And so we'll take a look at that in a second. So let me just pray quick, okay? Lord, thanks for today. God, thanks that we can get together and soak in these fantastic um, ideas. And in a lot of settings, an idea uh, can be maybe not the best word, but Lord, we know that you give life through them. And so I pray just that you would help us to settle in and uh, hear what needs to be heard. And Lord, let me get out of the way and you say what you want to say. And just, uh, we love you. We do this for your kingdom, for your glory, in your name, amen. So if you had asked me a couple uh, months back, what is imagination, I don't know necessarily that I would have been able to answer. Uh, I was driving in the car and I heard on a Science Friday, uh, they were talking about time travel. And one of the, one of the scientists said, it, it quotes this from Augustine, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks, I don't know. 
And it was funny because this is so absolutely true. And then in this uh, discussion of philosophers and scientists and all these guys, they're talking about how time travel could never be. And the reason being, if you went back in time right now, uh, the big one is that just the earth isn't going to be here if you go back in time a day, the earth is somewhere else. And so now you're in the vacuum of space and it doesn't work good. And I thought that's exactly what anyone who knows how to time travel would tell us who don't so that we don't try and pursue just their gift, right? So, um, so time, a lot like the imagination, we know what it is, right? If I say imagination, you have some mental picture. You're using your imagination to know what imagination is. And yet if I held your feet to the fire and said, what is imagination? Chances are we would come up with things that are imaginative or things that are creative or whatever. And you might have a working definition for imagination and hopefully we'll have something on the other end. But So this past year I was reading through uh, a book called River of Doubt, the story of Theodore Roosevelt going down uh, the River of Doubt in Brazil. So the story takes place after Roosevelt uh, fails to win the election on a third party, the bull moose ticket, and kind of splits the Republican Party and all that kind of interesting stuff. But, but Roosevelt, to get his mind off of that failure, which he never really took well, uh, history tells us, uh, went down and did this incredible exploration down in Brazil. And so this is from the book. It's by Candace Millard, uh, and it's called The River of Doubt. And so uh, it says, When Roosevelt emerged from his thin balloon silk on the morning of February 28, 1914, he stepped into the narrow clearing that his men had carved between water and forest. Before him rushed the river of doubt, dark and swollen and littered with debris from fallen trees. Having overflowed its banks, it coursed through the forest on either side in wayward streams and rivulets, picking up clots of leaves and displaced birds' nests and filling the jungle with a glass-like floor of water that mirrored the canopy above. The expedition's dugouts rocked uneasily at their moorings, looking as unreliable at dawn as they had the afternoon before. Although Roosevelt had hunted and camped in forests throughout the U.S., marveling at California's enormous redwoods, he had never seen anything like the prodigy of nature that surrounded him now. In the early morning light, the scene that Roosevelt beheld was a breathtaking tableau of timeless nature, tranquil and apparently unchanging. That impression, however, could hardly have been more dangerous or deceiving. For even as the men of the expedition gazed in awe at the natural beauty surrounding them, the creatures of the rainforest were watching back, identifying them as intruders, assaying their potential values, surveying their weaknesses, and preparing to take whatever they might have to give. Far from its outward appearance, the rainforest was not a garden. Oh, there it is. It's going to jump. Okay. So far from its outward appearance, the rainforest was not a garden of easy abundance, but precisely the opposite. Its quiet, shaded halls of leafy opulence were not a sanctuary, but rather the greatest natural battlefield anywhere on the planet, hosting an unremitting and remorseless fight for survival that occupied every single one of its inhabitants every minute of every day. Though frequently impossible for a casual observer to discern, every inch of space was alive from the black teeming soil under Roosevelt's boots to the top of the canopy far above his head, and everything was connected. 
A long linked mat of fungi under the soil, soil consumed the dead and fed the living, completing an ever-changing cycle of remarkable life and commonplace death which had throbbed without pause for millions of years, and of which Roosevelt and his men, knowingly or not, had now become a part. Sometime later, a friend asked Roosevelt why he had risked so much on this adventure that actually nearly killed him. So your former president kind of done big things in your life, why now at this point in your life would you go and do this? And here's what he said. He said, it was my last chance to be a boy. So these are the stories that stir my soul. Edmund Hillary in Mount Everest, Ernest Shackleton in the Antarctic continent, Hiram Bingham in Machu Picchu, Lewis and Clark in the Uncharted West. The six-year-old in me comes alive and leans in, keeps me turning the pages when reading these stories. Now, you can imagine my excitement when I first opened Mason's Volume 4, Ourselves, and began reading these words. My Lord Chief Explorer, Imagination, deserves a more complete introduction than the, by the way, mention he has had as a colleague of intellect. He's an amazing personage with the power to produce, as we have seen, a procession of living pictures in every region open to intellect. Great artists, whether they be poets or painters, builders or musicians, have the power of expressing and showing to the rest of us, some part anyway, of the wonderful visions imagination has revealed to them. But the reason why we enjoy their pictures or their poems or their tales is because imagination does the same sort of thing for all of us, if in a less degree. We all have pictures and poems made for us on the inner curtains of our mind. So I read that and thought to myself, you had me at Chief Explorer Imagination, Miss Mason, right? Because the six-year-old in me is drawn to explore and to look for things that are unknown and to pick up the rock to see what's under the rock and to then throw the rock to see what the rock can break. And we live in a culture where it feels like everything has been explored for us. Google your question and you will find an answer eventually the one that you want to find, depending on how many links you need to click. But, and so there can be this sense of like, there's nothing left to explore. All the age of great exploration was in the early 19th century, the early 20th century. But the reality is, is that this thing that Mason comes across and calling our imagination the great explorer is such a beautiful metaphor. And there's something about metaphor because it invites us into a story. And, and so I don't know, maybe you're new to this stuff, um, and maybe, uh, maybe you've been in on it a long time. The given in this is that we can't educate with the Charlotte Mason philosophy without giving imagination its proper place. It doesn't work. And so we're going to look at that a little bit. So if you would have asked me what is imagination, I don't know that I'd been able to give you a word answer, but if you had asked me to give you a picture, I would have been able to, no problem. So this is, of course, Calvin and Hobbes, which is not at all twaddle, <laughs> okay? And so I know there's been discussion in our idol challenge about comics and whatever. Calvin and Hobbes is not comics. Calvin and Hobbes is, so the Bible, Mason, somewhere in there, Bill Watterson. So, but this to me is a picture of an explorer. It's simple. 
So 45 million times someone has hit play on Ken Robinson's inspiring, challenging TED Talk titled, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Anyone watch that one? Anyone pass that one along? Anyone watch it and then watch it again? If you haven't seen it, this is one you need to see. Not right now, because it'd be awkward, but eventually. <laughs> and in this TED Talk, Robinson I don't know if we're, we have to call him Sir Ken Robinson. Do we? I don't know how that works. But he says, I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity. We grow out of it, or rather we get educated out of it. And so he's speaking to a system of education that takes kids in all of their kidness, right, which we know as persons, and then educates out of them all of that kidness so that they can sit still in the factory of giving them information so that they can produce the widgets that will make our system of economics continue to thrive, right? That's very cynical, but... And so Robinson says, look, this isn't the way it needs to be. And he's actually got more than one TED Talk, and they're fantastic. And I don't know if he knows Mason or not, but a lot of the things that he talks about are just those things where you go, yeah, 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 that, that thing that you said. And in his book, Out of Our Minds, which I have to, I didn't know if we have to admit if we've finished a book or not. I don't know if that is, a, I didn't finish it, okay? But in his book, in the intro, it says, Imagination which is the process of bringing to mind things that are not present to our senses. And so in a culture that values what can be measured, seen, touched, tasted, weighed, proven, the things that are not tangible to our senses become secondary. And even in a culture where we value and say we uh, give rightful place to folks who are creative, um, it's not the case at all, because unless your creative can be commodified, then it's actually not that valuable. And so here's the thing. Somewhere along the line, somebody came up with the word creative as a label to put on people who do creative things for mortgage payments. And there's no such thing as a creative and a non-creative. And actually, the church is horrible at this. So I'm a pastor. I pastor a church plant in Oshkosh. We've been around for 10 years. Actually, we're going to be celebrating 10 years this fall. Note to self, we need to do a party. And in, in church world, we talk about creatives, and there's conferences for creatives. And every time you use a word like that, what does it imply? That there are non-creatives, Right? And so in this book, Out of Our Minds, Robinson talks about kind of some of the troubles of the world and how we're going to need creative solutions to those. And it's this fantastic, inspiring thing. And that we need creativity. We need in uh, our imagination to be able to see things that and answers to problems that have, we don't even know are there yet. And, and it's not just people who can write poetry or, or paint really nice or who can dance who are creatives. We were all born creative because we are image bearers. We're going to take a look at that in a second. And so if you're here and you're like, man, I wish so-and-so would hear this because they're super creative. Look, that is just a label someone else is wanting you to wear. You are creative. You may have forgotten your creativity. But in this talk, he talks about how if you ask any kindergartner if they're an artist, they'll say, yeah, and then not only say, yeah, they'll show you what they've done, right? And then at third grade, they're a little less. And then in high school, no one's an artist because what are you going to do with that, little Billy? How are you going to make a living being an artist? And 
the tragedy of that is that it misses a very important truth. So in just under 20 minutes in this TED Talk, Robinson pokes just the right boxes and he asks all the right questions and 45 million calls to create an education system that nurtures rather than stifles creativity. It's the process that brings to mind things that are not present to our senses. And here's the fun in this. We get it. I don't need to convince you that there's a different educational system that won't stifle your kids' creativity. And so I don't have to convince any of us of the importance of anything that he talks about in that. We get it, and we maybe to varying degrees understand the necessary role imagination plays in education. But So take, for example, the CM bread and butter uh, picture study. I've already done one this weekend when Nancy's great giving us that. And, and, and so take this picture study, this. And have you ever described picture study to somebody who's maybe interested in a Mason education or knows nothing about it? Maybe your conversation went like this. So you say you have your children do what with that piece of art? And Well, you give it to them and then they look at it, right? And then they do what with that? Well, they look at it. For like a really long time, they look at it. Like three, five minutes, they look at it. Why do they look at it? And what are, are they critiquing it? Are they trying to give you the answer you're looking? No, no, no. They just, they look at it until they can close their eyes and then see in their minds what they're looking at. And so, well, what's the point of that? Are, no, they're not critiquing it? Are you sure? No, they're not. There's no test? No. So what are they doing? Anyone ever had that conversation? Jason, I don't talk about picture studies with people who don't get Mason because I don't want to have that conversation. You say, well, they're looking at it until they can close their eyes and see it in the art gallery of their minds. Why? Because it helps them to be more fully human to do so. Rick McKinley, a pastor out in Portland, says every person, no matter how battered by life, is created in the image of God. And this is actually one of the core beliefs of Water City, our church that I pastor. Because we are all image bearers, and if there's one idea that should change the way we interact with everybody outside of our skin and actually inside of our skin too, it's the incredible reality that you carry the Imago Dei. And I know this is a theological truth. We're created in the image of God, God in relationship to himself, God, us in relationship to him. But this is more than some dry theology or some Latin word that I can memorize. This is a reality. And so your ability and capacity to love and to be into relationship with others and to be known and this is the Imago Dei. Your intellect, your giftings, your insight, your reason, your imagination is a reflection of the Imago Dei. And so when you create, you are joining with the God who created to continue the process of creation. And it's interesting how amazingly art got into this and my pastor's head was fighting with my educator's head and sometimes they get along and sometimes they fight because I was writing down all these notes of how much all of that comes into play in the New Testament. And how much what he was talking about is the struggle as Paul's talking with the Hellenistic church and just, you know, whatever. But the Greek mindset was what the, the pinnacle of, per, of, of 
perfection is the perfect form. And so this God who creates but then invites us into the process of creation, how radical is that? And how foreign is that? And how amazing is that? And so he never says creation is perfect, does he? He says it's good. Five times he says it's good. And one time he says it's very good when he creates mankind. He adds a very, which is a whole other talk and a whole interesting thing. And so you are an image bearer whether or not somebody has given you the label of creative. As an image bearer, you are creative. And so Erwin McManus, another one of my fun uh, pastors that uh, in this book, Artisan Soul, says, the source material for the entire physical universe is the imagination of God. Now, if this was a Sunday morning sermon, I'd say, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And we'd say, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is, was visible. Sex helium. Out of nothing. This is fundamental to who we are as followers of Jesus. It wasn't from something that God created. It was out of his imagination. Now, Jay, that's just a little bit maybe sacrilegious to talk about God's imagination. And if that maybe brussels your skin a little bit, you maybe, I invite you, challenge you to expand your idea of what imagination is. Because God's imagination is a wonderful thing. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that you are being fashioned into the image, the likeness of Christ. And he uses language that says you've already attained it, and yet you haven't attained it. That God sees it and knows it. This is what you are becoming, and yet not who you are yet. That God has imagined that this is who you are going to be. And so uh, imagination is secondary to all this other stuff. It's only secondary when we have a little God. It only reasons, only does the predictable. But when we understand that God from the invisible made the visible, that had to come from somewhere. And so he dreamed it. Not that we are dreams, but he made tangible from what was intangible. So, and it's not just all that we see, earth and sky and rocks and caterpillars and you, but what God has created and is still in the process of creating, he calls you to become what you are not yet now. And so one of the core values of our church is this value of becoming. Who you are right now isn't yet who God is calling you to be. Does he love you where you are at right now? Absolutely but he loves you enough to not leave you where you are at right now. It's this continual knowing that God is calling us into something else that does not yet exist. And yet God is everywhere, and that means he is at all times, and so it kind of exists. But we have this funny thing called a timeline. And so McManus writes, the life of faith is less about gathering information than it is about expanding the imagination. The movement Jesus started was a movement of dreamers and of visionaries and not a movement of academics and theologians. And see, 
piggybacking off of art. You can be mad at him, not me, but you can be mad at me. The church at some point along the line has moved from being a church of dreamers and academics and Christianity in the West is about purifying our doctrine and our theology. And not that there's not something important about doctrine, there is. But Jesus didn't come and give a doctrine, did he? He came and told stories. And we are able to bring out of those truths that reveal the deeper thing that he was saying. But when we fight about doctrine, I know my kids aren't going to be moved to do the things that God is calling them to do off of a solid systematic theology. They need to know that they are loved and made in the image of a God who loved them enough to come to be among them to show the way to the Father. And so I know this is maybe a little bit thin ice, but I'm totally comfortable with being out here. If we are fighting over doctrine and missing the imaginative dream of the kingdom of heaven, we need to reread the Gospels. Because in those, Christ invites us into this place that is so absolutely revolutionary. There was just no context for it. And so we are a movement of dreamers and of visionaries not simply a movement of academics and theologians. So a little way back, a friend of mine recommended this uh, NPR podcast called Radio Lab, And uh, one really good one was called, it's called Seeing in the Dark. And the quick description of the episode is this. John and Zoltan were both blind, but they deal with the world in a completely different ways. One paints vivid pictures in his mind, while the other one refuses to picture anything at all. So the first guy, his name's John Hall, he died in 2015, was emeritus professor of religious education at the University of Birmingham. He was born sighted, but because of a genetic condition, he gradually lost his sight. And so he says the worst thing about losing his sight initially was that he was incredibly bored. He said while he was sighted, he always had something to fill his mind with. He could look and he could see and there were trees and there were leaves and things to fill his mind but as he lost his sight, this he had nothing. And so when it went dark, it left him with nothing. And at a low place at this dinner party, Hall says he uh, had a friend come up to him and said, John, I just need to tell you, your wife looks incredible today. And, and he was like, really the cheek of this guy who's going to tell me my wife is beautiful? What's he looking at my wife for? And then after he got thinking about how... Um, how ridiculous it was for his wife to go and get her hair done and to buy good new clothes and to go through all of the trouble to make herself look good when her husband couldn't even see any of that, which is, paints the whole reality of how skewed we get when we turn the camera in on ourselves, right? Like any of that had to do with what he was taking in to her value. But in his mind, it was just not worth it. And so... He, instead of picturing his wife and his kids or his house the way he remembered them, he decided instead to push, to push pictures out of his mind altogether. And he, he says that to, um, to imagine what they were was a lie. And so rather than imagine what they were, because what they were is not what they are, he would just picture nothing. And so he chose nothing. 
E.A. Parrish in one of the Parents Review articles, who now I'm learning we can't trust them all. I thought I was being cool going into the archive. Thanks a lot, Art. <laughs> but actually, Nancy quoted Parrish, so we're safe. Okay. <laughs> says, the word imagination means to face, to visualize an image, to almost make the thought concrete from within. The power of reasoning and the power of imagining go hand in hand. The power of reason without imagination tends to make us materialists and unable to understand faith, which you could say is the prevailing, prevailing cancerous mindset of our culture. If it isn't measurable, able to be taken in by our senses of sight and touch and feeling and taste and hearing, then it isn't true, then like John Hall said, it's a lie. And if it's a lie, then we reject it. The other side of the story, though, is Zoltan Tori, who died in 2014. He was born sighted also, but he lost his sight in a, in a horrific work accident. And Zoltan simply couldn't stand living in a world without images, so he resolved to, in his words, repopulate the world with images and reconstruct reality for himself which he said wasn't actually that hard because his dad growing up was the head of a motion pictures department. He was a movie guy. And he would give young Zoltan these movie scripts and say, read these, picture what's going on in these. And so growing up as a kid, he had read movie scripts and had been trained to picture in his mind the story unfolding in front of him. And so he said, that's just what I do now. I go into a room and in my mind I picture what's there off of what's sights and off, or not off of sights, but off of the way I hear uh, noise in the room, off of what I'm taking in through my scent, through, through smell. And he said, it's, and they said, can you see it? And he said, yeah, I can see it. In my mind, I can see it. In the same way that you see the pew out of the corner of your eye and have a mental picture of it, he says, I see it. And he actually says that he worked on his uh, roof at night. And he's like, what difference does it make if I work on my roof at night? I'm blind, right? He goes, but I can see it because I know what's there. And he said he scared his neighbors real bad doing that. <laughs> but he said, I just couldn't live in a world without pictures. Now, Mason says, in volume one, now imagination does not descend full grown to take possession of an empty house. Like every other power of the mind, it is the merest germ of a power to begin with and it grows by what it gets in the childhood, the age of faith. That's a whole talk in itself. Is the time for its nourishing. The children should have the joy of living in far lands in other persons in other times, a delightful double existence and this joy they will find for the most part in their storybooks. Their lessons to history and geography should cultivate their conceptive powers. If the child does not live in the times of the history lesson, be not at home in the climes of his geography book, describes why these lessons will fail of their purpose. But let lessons do their best, and the picture gallery of the imagination is poorly hung if the child have not found his way into realms of fancy. It may sound extreme. Mason here is saying, look, the imagination is something that needs to be cultivated. Decades before Ken Robinson ever said that we need to keep from teaching kids out of creativity. 
The opposite of cultivation, though, is amputation. And see, we can choose to tend the imagination, which she says grows by what it gets, or we can say that what is imaginary is a lie and cut it off and tell people to grow up and to get real. Now, this going back to the River of Doubt expedition, it actually was never supposed to happen. So it was planned originally to just be an excursion through, um, through some rivers in Brazil and South America that had already been explored. And so it was going to be a l- more along the lines of Roosevelt's kind of African safari expeditions. Still kind of a hint of danger, but... And so originally, this wasn't supposed to be a trip down this incredibly deadly, unknown river where they knew where it started and they kind of wondered where it ended and had no idea in the middle. And Candace Miller writes, she says, although Roosevelt remained mildly interested in his pending South American journey, so this is before it happens, during the months before his departure, he viewed the expedition as little more than a delightful holiday that would provide just the right amount of adventure. You ever gone on a delightful holiday that you thought would provide just the right amount of adventure and realize it was the river of doubt? Like, really? Two flat tires? Are you serious? And so this is code to say that uh, Theodore was essentially hands-off in the planning of this. And so the guy who was kind of spearheading all this and invited Roosevelt into the expedition was a guy named Father Zom. Uh, this Catholic priest. And he was the guy who had the idea for the trip in the first place. He walks into this New York department store, Rogers and Pete and Company. And he starts telling the salesperson in the um, sporting goods department his plans for the trip. Now, this is like the maybe not going into Walmart and talking to the guy who's in charge of the home or the sporting goods department, maybe more going into REI. But the guy or the lady who's in charge of the camping area or the dried whatever. And so Father Zom starts to talk about this trip that's going on and getting planned. And this guy, the salesman, he says, I would give anything to go with you. Come along, Zom replied. He says, I'm sure that Colonel Roosevelt will be glad to have you as a member of the expedition. And it's so great. Quickly, it comes to light that this guy knows his stuff. He's more than just the head of the sporting goods department of uh, Walmart there in New York. He's totally got a background, and he's an actual explorer. So he's put in charge of outfitting the expedition, and his name is Anthony Fiala. And actually, he's got this uh, this trading card. So as I was putting together thoughts for this and spreading wide the feast for myself to read, um, one of the things is getting tangible things. And so in 1910... Hasten uh, Cigarettes put out the world's great explorers trading cards. And this one isn't that great. It's only rated as fair 1.5. And so my wife thinks it's ridiculous that I bought this, but I think it is amazing. So, okay. (laughs) So this is Anthony Fiala. Now, here's just a little bit about, about this. Miller goes on. She says, As convenient as it may have seemed to Zom, however, the selection of Fiala as the expedition's quartermaster was less than auspicious. This is very uh, lightly said. For the expedition as a whole, 
For a while, the 44-year-old clerk indeed did have a background in exploration. The details of that experience arguably made him the last person on Earth to be entrusted with the planning or provisioning of a scientific expedition. That's not really that veiled of a thing to say about somebody, is it? You ever feel like you're the last person on Earth who should be made in charge of uh, educating and no, none of us do, except we all do. Because we all feel like Anthony Fiala. See, here's Fiala's backstory. Before he was the clerk at this store in New York, he actually had two failed expeditions to the North Pole. He got invited in to be in charge of one that someone else was leading, and when that guy kind of went south, Fiala tried to get them going, and they never made it very far on the ice, so they came back. But he said, it's not really my fault. It wasn't my expedition. So he talks his money guys into going again, and so they put together this trip, and they're off going. And remember, at this time in history, it's Everest, it's Antarctica, and it's the North Pole. This is the trifecta of exploration. And so Fiala says, let's do it, we can do it. And so here to show how amazing of a guy in charge he was, they get onto the ice and the first thing he does is he takes all of their supplies. And I'm no ice fisherman, but I know a bit about ice. And he took all of their supplies and he put them in one little area on top of the ice. And when they went to bed, they were there. And when they woke up, they were gone. They, all of his supplies had fallen into through the ice. Not a great way if you want to like make it to the North Pole and he could still see the ground of Canada. And so that didn't go well. But he could talk exploration. And so Zom put him in charge of outfitting. You ever feel like you've blown it one too many times? So fast forward to the expedition, and they're there getting ready to go down the riv river, and they've brought crates and crates and crates of supplies, and they're unpacking the supplies. And this is what, as the men's inventoried their baggage, their concern about Fiala's preparations began to turn into alarm. Quote, most of his equipment was useless, or it had been appropriately termed doodle dabs, Leo Miller, a scientist on the team, says. The rations were even larger and far more critical. They were a bigger problem than the equipment. When the men pried open several of Fiala's crates, they were stunned by what they found. He says, we discovered whole cases of olive oil and cases of mustard and malted milk and stuffed olives and prunes and applesauce and et cetera and et cetera. He says, even Rhine wine. Such gourmet condiments were all nice enough in their place, he wrote, but on such a tremendous journey, they were useless. So when I first came across the story of Fiala as I was listening slash reading this book, um, I'm like, I just, like, here's this guy and he's getting this second chance. This is amazing because we've all felt like we've blown it and yet we continue to get these next chances, right? September always comes around and you get to reboot the system. And then like they get there and he just completely blows it and he's got olive oil and olives and like really we've lugged this across and now this is what we're going to go down the river with. But don't forget when Fiala was originally planning this expedition, it was for a former president, national royalty, to go down rivers that had already been explored and really weren't that dangerous. 
And so when they were prepping this, he actually had sent multiple uh, varieties of tea to Roosevelt and said, which one of these do you want? Uh, We'll just bring them all. See, but he was prepping for a journey that they never took because when they got to Brazil, the guy who was going to bring them around was like, hey, I know you're going to do this thing, but have you heard about this other river that we know nothing about? And if there was a guy that you were going to get to do something like that, it was Roosevelt with that kind of a thing because he had said, I don't want to go to South America and be the 1,000th person to go to Cusco. And so adventure was wired into him. See, we are outfitting for a life of whatever comes rather than the perfectly safe life we all imagine our kids living. This has come to reality in my family's life in the last six months when when Amy's brother's wife died suddenly. And our families shared birthdays together. All of our kids, are, our four kids match their four kids. And we planted our church together 10 years ago. And, and out of nowhere, um, 36-year-old mother dies. You don't plan for that. And there's no way to out for that, outfit for that. You don't read a book a year ago and go, well, in case some tragedy happens in our life, we'll have this in our tool kit. We are outfitting our kids for a world that we have no idea what's in store for them. And I've said before, but I'll say it every time I get a microphone, in the West, our idol is comfort. And we serve a system where the more comfortable we are, the better, whether that's in the church or whether that's just in our neighborhoods. And see, we don't serve a God that calls us to comfort, do we? We serve a God that sows us his seed. And so there's no way to prepare for the life ahead of us. And so we are outfitting our kids for a life that we want them to have, but also for the life that we know is going to be coming. And so this idea of outfitting the imagination, it's not just fluffy way to let your kid imagine It's a realizing that the things that they're going to go through are unknown to you, known to the God that we serve, who we say brings to them the things that they're going to need and what we lay before them. And so as we spread the feast, we trust that the things that they'll need, they'll have. And so Mason says, the food of mind, a daily bread as necessary as that of the body is precisely those mental pictures or ideas which imagination produces. And for this reason, children must have the mind stuff which they can transmute into such pictures or ideas. Nothing external serves the purpose. I'm not bold enough to say as Mr. Chesterton, Hans Anderson or that, but I do venture to say that the mind which does not feed on poetry, history, fiction, travel, all the treasures that are bound up in books, on pictures, on the beauty of a sunset or a flower, such a mind may never be acute and alert, or such a mind may be acute and alert, but it does not dwell in heavenly places. See, and one of my big pushbacks to the whole thing of a Charlotte Mason education was, I get that it's fluffy, but what does that mean for putting food on the table at the end of this for my kids? 
I wanted kids who were acute and alert. And as we dug into this more, I see that the importance of something a whole lot more. See, we live in a culture that is very acute and very alert. It's sharper and quicker than I think any other. In 140 characters, somebody can get roasted seconds after they post something. We live in a culture that is very acute and very alert, but with a mind not fixed on the heavenly things, acuteness and alertness only breeds cynicism. And we were created to have our eyes singularly fixed on things above, as Nancy said. And so there is outfitting to be done for us as educators and as persons ourselves. These are the things that are not just for the children. They're for all of us because we're all, in fact, persons. And it's for the shaping of our souls, which are not disconnected from anything else. So what is the outfitting? We're going to hit a couple quick. In order for the information to do the work of taking other folks' ideas and then digesting them in our minds and then making them ideas which are our own, a few things have to happen. The first of all is this. You can't do a talk without referencing the science of relations, right? Education is the science of relations. That is, a child has natural relations to a vast number of things and thoughts So we must train him to look upon physical exercises, nature, handicraft, science, and art, and upon many living books. For we know that our business is not to teach him all about anything, but to help him make a valid as many as may be those firstborn affinities that fit our new existence to existing things. I'll just confess, I was one who thought this science of relations is just the connection of everything. When I preach, or the, the fun for me is to be able to connect dots. Um, one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell, talks about the connectors in his book, Tipping Point. It's a great thing. And so in my mind, it was to connect these ideas together, and art was like, no, 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 that's not it at all. It's, well, it's part of it, but it's actually it's you connecting to those ideas. And yeah, they connect to each other, but it's, it's your relation to those things. Like, yeah, that's what I said, right? And so this, and then I made a connection to this idea of we connect to things. And so my mental picture to this is kind of Scotty in Star Trek, who no matter what's going on, can go and can fix the thing because he knows everything that's in the Enterprise and can, that's only great to three of us. But to us, that was a living idea. So it's living ideas through a wide and varied curriculum, living books and books and books. But did you notice Mason talked about handicrafts and science and art and dance and sunset? And so there's not just the one place that, well, God, this is the way you're going to get all of your truth across, but it is trusting that there is no place in the library that is unsafe. And so it's through a wide and varied curriculum. And uh, uh, forgive me if this is just a little basic, but, and it's in the narration of those ideas. The idea of the artist or the author or the musician is taken and digested. And when the narration is written or drawn or danced or sung, imagination makes it theirs. And so is it any wonder the common uh, complaint uh, statement is nobody remembers on Thursday what was preached on Sunday? 
There's no space to narrate that. You information dumped. And so that's why that ride home is so important or that dinner together after a small group or a service or a reading. And see, this for me is the fun of narrating and having the kids narrate their day to me and me narrating them. And hey, I was reading this thing and this guy died in this book and I didn't realize he was going to, it really threw me off and kind of upset me for the day. And the kids hearing that and taking that in and hearing dad and mom talk about the things that they're reading. And so this narration is this digestion and then it is making it yours. It's not just filing it away, hoping it's a, it becomes a part of you. And we need time. See, imagination thrives with time to roam the fields, to walk the sidewalk, to wander the antique store or the museum. A rushed life is the crush of our culture. John Ortberg says that an unref... Uh, ah. A life that is not reflected upon, I'm butchering it, Jason paraphrase, is a wasted life. And we can only reflect if we have time to pause. The non-cultivation of our imagination is a rushed life. It's okay to let our kids be bored. My kids have to go out with us after a Sunday, after they've been in church for the last four hours because, you know, they're PKs. And there they are at Qdoba, and they're just climbing over each other. And we just go, it's all right for you to be bored. You don't need that screen right now. Just don't kill anybody in here. Because <laughs> when you're bored, you invent things, and your imagination goes. And so there's this book. So when I first, uh, Nancy, asked about doing this, I picked up any book off of Amazon that had Imagine in it and didn't have to do with like transcendental meditation, which is surprisingly a lot of things, and that's not what we're talking about. So anyway, I got this book by a guy called John Lair called Imagine, not realizing he had imagined a lot of the things in this book, including conversations with Bob Dylan. And so the book's actually pulled, but it's kind of a good book, but I don't know what a, is imaginary. But in this book, he talks about, and I think it's true, because I think you can relate, that we need space in our life of not being driven to be able to have the epiphanies that we think one extra cup of coffee is going to give us, yet in reality only comes with the hike or the quiet drive or the shower. There's a reason why the things and the ideas that come to us in the shower come to us, and it's because we are relaxed and none of the other stuff around us can get us. If you've got a lock on the door, otherwise your five-year-old's still going to get you. He talks about it as blue wave mental, and that we're allowing ourselves to go off of alert so that we can have these epiphanies. One writer says you'll never have to erase something that you woke up in the night to write down. That when we have time to pause, the imagination can put into place what needs to be put into place. So it's okay to let your kids be bored. They don't need that screen on every car trip, right? Right? Bored kids frustrate us as parents, and they turn on each other, and then they turn on us. But being bored gives them a chance to realize that that stick is actually going to be a really cool, 
whatever it turns into imaginatively. And I grew up, man, G.I. Joe was it. And so if it made noise, it was better. And my wife kind of schooled me on, you know, the more noise it makes, the less noise they have to make. And the more things it does, the less things they bring to the game. And I went, you're very right. And so don't be afraid to give them simple things or let them loose. Have any of you seen the dangerous park movement that's in some cities? It's kind of an underground thing. It's letting your kids play in places that are not safe. My daughter, uh, who it is, look it up, it's awesome. Not right now, I'm talking. (laughs) But my daughter's got this funny thing. She broke her collarbone on a merry-go-round, but not one of the cool ones that we rode that were metal that could like almost go back in time. But the new ones that have like no ball bearings in them and you push them and you're like, really? Are you kidding me? Are we grinding wheat? (laughs) Well, she fell off it and broke her collarbone. So now anytime we go into one of those parks by a company that wants you to play it safe, she goes, this is not a safe park. (laughs) And it's like if we can nerf everything for our kids, it's going to be awesome. But don't be afraid to let them... Rome, and let, and I know it's a whole other thing, but just fight what our culture says. And if I had a nickel for every time I told my kids to be careful, even after giving a talk on having them risk, it sickens me how many times I say, you can do that, just be careful. And so anyway, let them be bored, let them. Time means saying no to things to create space to say yes to others. It means saying no to even the good things for the better things. It wasn't bad things that tied up the religious leaders in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They were busy with church stuff, right? Going to, from Jerusalem for temple things, but they needed to get where they were getting. How many times have I missed an interruption that I needed to have because I was too busy for the interruption? So what margins are you intentionally putting into your life? What things are you saying no to that are good things that you need to say no to? And are your kids seeing it? They're not going to not make the majors because you're not having them in all-year baseball. They're not. In fact, medicine's starting to say we're actually doing damage to our kids by having them do sports every season because there's no rest for their little bodies. So do our kids... See us modeling rest. Do the stories that they are taking in involve interruptions? Jesus actually said no when Mary and Martha said, come and see us. At first glance, it was tragic, right? Lazarus died and Jesus could have healed him. And, but there was a better everyone needed, not just a healing, but a forerunner of resurrection. So skip that one more lesson this season or fight the crush of our culture to sign the kids up for one more sports team. Let them play in the neighborhood. Let them ride those bikes to where the sidewalk ends and the stories begin. It's a fight and our culture sees Sundays now as fair game. As a pastor, this just, mm, because I can remember when everything was closed on Sunday. I can, you can. And now Sunday is just a good day for practice. 
You need Sabbath. I need it. Now, this isn't a legalistic thing, okay? I'm not taking attendance on where you're at this coming Sunday. But you were made for Sabbath. You are an image bearer who is born, created, creative, and made for rest. See, when we don't rest, and you know this, you've heard the messages, God instituted Sabbath because he was calling the Jews out of slavery, slavery where there was no rest. And he said, seven days you had to work for somebody else, six days you're going to work, and on that seventh you're going to remember that actually I provide it all for you anyway. And don't forget, I created in six, and on the seven I rested. Why? Because I was tired? No, 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 because I wanted to show you a rhythm different than the rhythm around us. And so this isn't some legalism thing on take Sunday off, because Sabbath isn't about not playing golf. It's about not doing the thing that makes you money on the other six days. And so it's not work to be in the garden. It's not work for me to mow the lawn. I don't make a living mowing the lawn. Do the things that are things that are worshipful. Gather in a faith community and then enjoy Sabbath. And I know that's a fight in our culture, but we are not necessarily supposed to reflect it. So Mason says, we need not say one word about the necessity for living thought in the teacher. It is only so far as he is intellectually alive that he can be effective in the wonderful process we glibly call education. There is so much sarcasm in that one run-on sentence, right? It's not enough for us to have good books for the kids. What are you reading? That is one of my favorite get-to-know-you questions. What are you reading? And if somebody's like, oh, well, you know, I'm a, is a way different answer than, oh, let me tell you, right? And those let me tell yous. See, you and I need this too. We can't give what we aren't receiving, not for very long. So rest and read and journal and create art and walk in nature. Don't just create space for your children's imagination to grow. Feed your own. You need solitude. You need living ideas. You need. So pretty much every time I share, even in Sundays, I make a point to share a failure. So this past fall, we were out on a hike. We, our family tries to hike on Mondays. It's my day off because, you know, church on Sunday. And so we were on a nature hike, and Amy had brought her, um, her nature study stuff. And so she had her journal and she had her pencils and her pen. And, and we, we had all four of the kids, 11 down to two, it was last year. And, um, and so Amy's kind of all full on Charlotte Masoning. And I'm keeping the kids alive. And so we're walking and hiking and enjoying God's glorious nature. And Amy's back being very attentive and picking things up and drawing things. And she's nature studying. I mean, she's doing it. And I'm keeping the kids alive. And I'm actually really annoyed that she's not up here helping me wrestle the kids who are skipping naps for this lovely nature hike. And so I texted her, like, are, if you're all done Charlotte Masoning, I would like for you to come up and join me. 
I am not perfect. <laughs> and uh, and she came up, and I had realized what I had done. And you can't undelete a text, <laughs> or you can't get rid of it. And so it was a quick, quick make it right. And but this isn't easy. See, it's work to get out into nature. You guys know that. Even if you live like surrounded by acres, it's still work. And so if you have to do the extra work, it's worth it. It's worth it to have a place, a tree that you go to through all of the seasons. But it's work. And see, even when I failed there and my wife was having her soul fed, she got it. She understood it. She knew. I need this to get through this week. And not only that, I need to model this for my kids. And so she was doing it. And so we need that. And so where is your space? What is the chair you read in? What is the book you are reading just for you? Not because you're going to teach it. Not because it's a book study book. But just for you. I just finished, I don't know if it's Twaddle, but Michael Crichton, they found a manuscript of his called Dragon's Teeth. Super fun, set in the West. And there's all kinds of really great, fun historical stuff in there about Deadwood and total just for me. Not going to make it in a sermon. I made it in this talk. <laughs> but what are you reading? And even some of this stuff, like Calvin and Hobbes, if it's not taking the place of something else, it's not that bad. It's okay. Unless it is, then don't quote me on that. So we're all going to mess up. That was my big mess up. Hashtag epic fail. So the reality of this, though, is that it's why I like Fiala's story so much as an outfitter. There was hope for the broken and not getting it right every time people, and that's called the gospel of grace, and it's not just for Sunday mornings. So Mason had some warnings, too. Um, it's not... She says not to let the kids fill up on silly stories that only grow the sense of absurdity. She calls it the incongruous. She might say something like, not too much Disney Channel, pre-digested imagination of adults who have forgotten what real imagination truly is. Imaginary is not the same as imagination by default. And see, some of the things that I thought was imagination feeding to the kids was really just something that someone wanted the kids to consume. And so making ourselves the center of the world, little princes and princesses, Mason warns that it's actually the risk of a child, and this is too long a quote to get into, but essentially says, look, in our minds, we can be the king or we can be the queen, and we can do such wonderful things in our minds for those that have aggravated us. Or we can do such horrible things in our mind. And she says that when we set ourselves up in our own mind as the prince or as the princess, then the trouble of that is, is that we turn imagination in on ourself. In imagination, the point is always external. And so this is, this is Eustace. This is Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he forgets that he is the little S and the big S story. And we all do it, right? If that guy would just go faster through this checkout line, I'd be able to get to where I need to get. My story is super important. So we need to lose our little stories so that we can find our place in God's gr true grand story. 
which is surrender and submission. Oh, man. All right. So then there's this process of living pictures that she talks about. We need to avoid decomposing pictures. Our news has a quick cycle of filtering through the decomposing pictures, and Mason actually talks about the danger of soaking in news that you never had the idea to do this crime until you had read about it, and then it implants in you, which is this weird thing, but it's so true. And so be careful to take in decomposing pictures. In our culture of the perverse, we totally can have access to anything, and some of those things we carry for quite a long time. And so, but as Christians, we're not always the best at that. And a book that I I would recommend is Christ and Culture by Richard Niebuhr. He talks about um, the importance of us looking at culture and knowing uh, what's good, what's bad. And one modern uh, uh, pastor says, with culture, we reject it, we redeem it, or we, we receive it. Missionaries talk about this as looking for redemptive analogies in a culture. Maybe you've read Peace Child with your kids. This idea of, of a missionary going into, I think it's Papua New Guinea, and to a culture of where um, uh, treason and treachery is the highest thing, like lift it up. And so if you could totally swindle an outside tribe, trick them, then you were the hero. How do you present the gospel when Judas is the hero? And in that culture, though, there was this redemptive analogy that had been built into the culture of if you wanted to make sure a tribe didn't trick you, you gave them an infant, and they gave you one. And as long as that baby stayed alive, you had an unbreakable pact with that tribe. But if someone killed that baby, if something happened to that baby, then it was all-out war. So what kind of a story did the gospel sound like to them that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son? And what then did Judas become in this where he tricks and kills the peace child? So our culture isn't all bad. Some of it's debased and fallen and we should reject it, but not all of it. And see, in Christian world, we think that if it's got a Christian label, Christian book, Christian movie, Christian whatever, it's safe. But the reality is that some of that stuff is just puke garbage. See, Christian's a great noun, but it's a not-so-great adjective. And secular and sacred are labels that we came up with, not the Lord. And so one theologian says that there's not one Adam that Jesus doesn't look at in all of creation and say, mine. And so we ask, is it true, right? Should we read that? Is it true? In a culture where anything goes, Northrop Fry, fantastic Canadian uh, professor, passed away a little bit ago, says, you wouldn't go to Macbeth to learn about the history of Scotland. You go to it to learn what a man feels like after he's gained a kingdom and has lost his soul. Is Macbeth true? What do you mean by true? One writer says that we read poetry not for fact, but for what always happens. Erwin McManus, last story, gives this. He talks about this uh, several years ago. He was asked to a conversation at Columbia University, and the subject was what can be known. 
And so he's on this three-panel discussion. One's the professor of the Department of Humanities, who's a Kantian philosopher. Another's the premier scientist. Uh, in their opening remarks, he says he knew for certain that he should have come better prepared. In an auditorium filled with hundreds of students and faculty, it was not difficult to ascertain that my faith put me in slim minority. So the debate unfolds, and after the debate plays out, it's time for question and answers, and the students put their questions on three-by-five cards, and they turn them in, and a couple go to this professor, and a couple to that, and a stack comes to McManus. And he looked at him, and he says, this one's my favorite question. This is the question. When you were a child, you had imaginary friends like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and God. Why did you get rid of the other imaginary friends and keep God? He says, even now I still love this question. With very little time to construct a thoughtful response, I approached it like this. He says, first of all, you're right that when you say I was a small child, I had imaginary friends like Santa and the Tooth Fairy and the giant rabbit that hid in my closet and only came out at night, but that's a different story and God. I suppose if you conclude that all of your imaginary friends are constructs of your imagination, then eventually all of those imaginary friends should disappear with maturity. And he talks about how his son didn't know to eat vegetables, that vegetables were good, but his little son would go out into the yard and eat rocks, and how he joked with his wife, like, we should throw the vegetables in the yard, and maybe he'll eat them thinking they're rocks, and she didn't think that was funny at all. But he said, we didn't give up on feeding vegetables just because he didn't know the vegetables were the good. And he said, I didn't give up on imaginary. He says, fortunately for Aaron, his son, just because he couldn't distinguish between peas and rocks, we didn't give up on proper meals. In the same way, just because when you're a kid, you can't distinguish between Santa Claus and God, you don't give up on your imagination and assume that all your imaginary friends need to be extricated from your life. He says... You see, if your imaginary friend somehow transforms your life, makes you a better human, moves you from arrogance to humility, from greed to generosity, from hate to love, if this imaginary friend changes everything for you and makes you the kind of human being that you've always longed to be but could never find the strength to become alone, do not, I repeat, do not ever give up on that imaginary friend because that imaginary friend who changes everything for the good is the most real thing you'll ever know. He says, is it possible that the human imagination is the playground of God? That while we fill the imagination with Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny, our imagination was always intended to be the place where humans could interact with God. Only in our imagination can we begin to contain even the smallest expression of the bigness of God. Only in our imagination can we accomplish anything, go anywhere, or become anyone only in our imagination do we have boundless possibilities and endless potential. Only in our imagination can we even begin to conceive of what reality might become if it began to reflect the imagination of God. In our imagination, conversations that come from someone who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present for whom all things are possible can be engaged at a human level. The reason I didn't give up on God when I put away my other imaginary friends is that every time I create more room by vacating an imaginary friend, I find more space for those extraordinary encounters with the living God. The power of reason, the, the article in the Re Parents Review said, the power of reason without imagination tends to make us materialists, 
and unable to understand faith. Rudyard Kipling, in a poem that inspired one explorer, says, There's no sense in going further. It's the edge of cultivation. So they said, and I believed it, broke my land and sowed my crop, built my barns and strung my fences in the little border station tucked away below the foothills where the trails run out and stop till a voice as bad as conscience rang interminably changes on one everlasting whisper day and night repeated so something hidden go and find it go and look behind the ranges something lost behind the ranges lost and waiting for you go Northrop Fry, an educated imagination, says, the fundamental job of the imagination in ordinary life then is to produce out of the society we live in a vision of the society we want to live in. This played out in our family. My wife Amy began to imagine a different way of doing education for our oldest Sophie, who went to kindergarten and came home tapped. And so she began to produce a new way to look of a world we wanted to live in. And Charlotte Mason became this whole other way of seeing what might be a new system of educating our children, a new way of engaging literature and faith, of expanding the opportunities of a rich education for our family. It was a rich and full picture that our imagination was painting in our minds, hoping what if, and it was motivating. Charlie Chaplin says imagination means nothing without doing, and so it's not enough to just think this. You need to do something with it, and Mason talks a lot about that if we had time. We must be able to see those things which are invisible, or how can we lift our eyes up to God? Imagination is, like faith, the evidence of things not seen. Indeed, it is not faith, the supreme effort of the imagination, wherein she stretches her wings, compels her powers to produce mental pictures or ideas of the things eternal, Mason writes. We lift up our eyes. So just a few weeks back, our daughter, who was a shell of a person coming home from kindergarten that got this whole thing started for us, said this, coming into the kitchen at night, she says, Mom, I kind of like going to bed at night because you get to just lay there and imagine. <laughs> Moms, you live in a time when all the voices in your head are crashing in and they're saying you're not enough. You're not doing enough. You're wrecking your kids. Dad's the same voice is saying to you the same things that were in the origin story in Genesis, the temptation that said you're not enough. Just take this and then you can be more, and you can know more. But they had all they needed. The gospel of Jesus says you are not enough, you are never enough, no matter how you try, you will never be enough, but I am, says Christ, so rest in me. Put your burdens down, take up my cross, and follow me. So I had hinted at this and how our life and our family has changed so much in the last, since March 17th. In over the past three, six months, I've had two funerals where this quote has been central to the message. One 36-year-old sister-in-law, one 89-year-old grandma. And this is a quote that's been passed back and forth between friends who are in mourning. You are not enough. 
The grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can only be yours if you reach out and take it and Maybe being able to reach out and take it as a gift to Frederick Buechner writes in Whispers in the Dark. Jeremiah 6.16 says, This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls.